Thanks for joining me today. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and you are listening to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 107, and I'm kicking off a new series. In this series, I'll be co-hosting with Patty M. Hall, a frequent guest on Reframe Your Life, to interview women writers. Most of these women have been writing memoir, and a few of them have hybrids or variations on memoir, creative nonfiction. And we are excited to bring this content to you and to introduce you to some of the people that we've been enjoying reading and learning from. I thought it would be appropriate to start this series with an interview with Patty. Patty has just released her own memoir, Loving Large. And let me just tell you a little bit about this book. I've just finished reading it this week in preparation for the interview with Patty. And it is a great story. In 2009, Patty's 16 year old son, Aaron, was diagnosed with gigantism after doctors discovered a tumor the size of a golf ball on his pituitary gland. When this grenade went off in Patty's life, an uber rare disease that most people, including Patty, thought was a figment of folklore, all of her previously relied upon tools for crisis response were useless. Already juggling the essential responsibilities of being a mother to two teen boys, the weight of her son's rare disease, medical needs, and gravity of his prognosis got so heavy that Patty cracked open. She tells the story in this book, and there's some statistics I thought were interesting about rare disease. Loving Large is for the parents of the 30 million plus children in North America who suffer from rare, chronic, or incurable diseases. Every mother and father of a child by touched by such a condition might have a unique tale of the diagnostic and treatment odyssey. Still, the commonalities of Patty and the experiences of many parents, heartaches, and despair make this everyone's story. As I interviewed Patty, we touched on my story, and although my story is very different, I too have been touched, like most of us, by illness and by caregiving and some of those responsibilities that are thrust upon us in our life. And so it's been my conclusion after this interview that this book is not just for parents of children with rare diseases. It's for everyone who has been a caregiver to anyone with any kind of illness. There were some technical difficulties with this recording. Even with this introduction, it's probably taken me a lot longer to record than normal. And I finally got to the point where I am just going to go with it and not even edit this intro. So you will hear a cat meowing in the background at some point in this podcast. And it also kind of ends abruptly with me just saying goodbye to Patty and then clicking off Zoom. So that happens too. The rest of the interview, I can promise you, will be stimulating, insightful, encouraging, and hopefully help you to reframe your life if you are the caregiver or the parent of a child with a rare disease. Thanks for listening today. Welcome, Patty. I'm really looking forward to this new series that you and I are going to be doing on memoirs and women writers and just exploring the stories of 
well, our own stories as well as the stories of some of the women that we know and or are hoping to get to know through the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. I'm so looking forward to it as well. My favorite thing, memoir writing yourself. So this is perfect for us to team up on. And I'm thrilled that we're kind of sneakily starting with my memoir. Well, and it's interesting for me. Well, interesting is probably not the best word. And I'm speaking to a writer, so I should be much more aware of the choice That's of right. words that I pressure. have. So, a pressure. So yes, a lot of pressure. Uh, it is, it's um, a better word than interesting. It is, I'm curious. I'm curious about this interview because we know each other so well and because I've heard bits and pieces of your story before I even read it. I feel like I met you at the beginning of the process and now I've read the book. And first of all, well done. I love the book. You did a great job. I had that moment when I got the book that you have when your friend says, I wrote a book and you go, (laughs) great. I hope it's what good is, because what is it <laughs> yes. and I have to find the words. Oh. So it's it's always a relief when it's like, oh, she's a great writer. Not that I doubted <laughs> you, but I was- totally, I totally understand. I go through that a lot, especially when writers reach out to me and go, Hey, have a look at my book. And I know I love them, but what if I don't love their book? Lying does not come easily to us. I know, and we know each other too well. I don't think I could fake it with you. So I was—it would, would have been desperate. Can you imagine having to call me and everyone who's listening? Can you imagine trying to find the words to say to your writer friend? Uh, yeah. So I finished your book. Hmm. Well, not and just your nothing. writer friend, your writing coach friend. Right. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> the pressure's on. What I did find from your book, um, it is so raw and I again that's a word I feel like we use a lot to talk about or to describe people who write stories that are very open and transparent about their situation and the journey they went on but you didn't hold back anything in this book from your story and I'm really curious to know what was it like for you what was the most I guess surprising thing that you discovered while you were writing loving large for me it was um how truly disparaging i was of myself i have been uh disparaging or blase about what i went through uh i continue to be and i think i've I've adopted it deeply into my dna where i'm like oh that's no big deal but you see, I would never think that if someone else went through what I did. And the first feedback I started to hear uh, when you said to me, you were so raw and vulnerable in this, the extension and what usually comes after is people saying, I had no idea what you went through. How the hell did you survive? And my reaction in writing it and as well as after the fact was I had no idea what I was going through because I was just getting through it. Um, the word endurance was actually something I was going to call the book endure because it's the place I had to go to simply plod through. And for me, it was, if my kid has to go through it, I have to too. He wasn't going to get a day off from rare disease and I couldn't get a day off from being his mom and loving him the way I did. So, um, although I don't think I've learned self-kindness, the next step would be, have I learned anything? Mm -hmm. I really should learn to not be so blasé about my own capacity to endure. 
I love the word endure. And I know that you've written about that in terms of the response we have to stress or trauma in our lives. So there's the uh, freeze, fight or flight, fight, mm -hmm. flight or freeze, I suppose is the traditional way we look at how we respond to trauma or danger in our life. And you have added this next level in there of endure there it's it's to me it's like that space between you're in this liminal place almost while you're going through the trauma yeah. you can't leave you no. can't you can't fight it and you, know? you won't leave your child behind so you know the most gripping response to that the, the shock of my kid having a diagnosis, first of all, I'd never heard of that I didn't know what he was going to need for was, if I freeze, so will he, and he'll be left alone with no one to care for him. If I flee, and I wanted to, I think I write in the book about wanting to hide under a bush somewhere, and hopefully, you know, all of the trucks looking for me will just go by. If I flee, I'd leave him behind. And you don't leave your kid behind. So, and, um, I couldn't fight it because it was too big for me and mm -hmm. enduring was the only option. So somehow I did all of those things simultaneously and the blockage of periods of time, for example, that I have literally forgotten. There were at least two months during the depressive episode I describe in the book, spoiler alert, the depressive episode uh, stole months from me mm. that I quite literally do not want back to be honest. But, you know, we always want months of our children's childhood back and those are gone too. And I just hope I was there for him during that time. Yeah. You described that um, there's the one scene that was so powerful for me and perhaps because I actually, maybe you don't know this, I actually did some work at St. Michael's Hospital. So I'm so mm -hmm. familiar with the hospital as well as the location of it because my husband had botched heart surgery in that hospital and he almost died. And um, so there's the scene where you like are like waiting. And yeah. it was, I, I just, it was so well written and I could, I could feel and I knew what that was like. And I don't have, I didn't plan to ask this question, but I, think you write a lot about relationships and how people supported you or didn't support you or yeah. um, were there and that push back that you do and the pushing away you do with people when they're going through this. And I'm just, um, I'm thinking of people who are going to read your book and I hope a lot of people do. And maybe they don't have the experience of going through this kind of trauma in their life, but they know someone who does and how do you support someone? How do you support someone who's going through that kind of trauma? It, would there have been a way, a helpful way for someone to have walked with you? If, if I'd let them, uh, I think my ex-husband did the best job possible of walking with me, which was to be nearby, to receive tasks willingly if I had them, to offer to do things for me I wouldn't let anyone else do, but in most cases, I rejected help. Um, to walk with me meant let me be in the mess because uh, you can't fix this for me. And I wasn't going to let anybody try and fix this for my kid. It became the reason I was on the planet unbeknownst to me. So 
who was I going to let get in there with me? First of all, I wouldn't have wished this on anyone. I didn't wish it on the kid's father. I wanted even to exempt him from it. And some part of me isn't very proud of the fact that I thought I'd do the best possible job. But beneath that was, I didn't trust anyone else with this. If it was going to get screwed up, and I screwed up a lot, if it was going to get screwed up, it was going to be on me. And I didn't want anyone witnessing that. And I didn't want anyone trying to make it sound okay because I really knew how not okay this was. Um, two of my girlfriends are prominent sort of in the middle of the book. And I didn't even have lives they recognized anymore. So they couldn't come with me. You know, I remember my friend Dana, I talk about in the book, she was, we used to talk every day, self-employed women, and we'd meet at a coffee shop after we got our kids off to school. And I'd work on a book and she'd work on building her business. And I remember us saying, so what does your day look like? And she'd say, oh, such a stressful day. I've got, you know, band in the morning and so-and-so's got sports after and I have to be in four towns at once. And that used to be my life. In fact, I think in chapter two, that is my life. But by chapter four, five, and six, I'm taking my kid to the brain surgeon. I'm in downtown Toronto all day at, you know, four hospitals with 11 doctors with this then 16 year old kid who was terrified and I still had to get home and get my kids on the bus, you know? So it wasn't to me possible for anyone to go into that space with me, whether I was in self-preservation or whether I was actually being selfish, I don't know. But luckily uh, in hindsight, I'm not clear enough on how I was at that time to hold myself accountable for probably the disparaging shit that I did. I, I suspect I did a lot of stuff I shouldn't be proud of. And certainly the blow up of my friendship with Val in the book is symbolic of what I did. Uh, at a time when I needed them most, I left my husband and best friend and I blew up my friendship with my best girlfriend and alienated everyone else. Wow. It's, it is um, understandable to me that that you would do that because I think when we are in these situations, we're just trying to cope and anything that feels like something else to manage or look after can be the thing that just, I can't, I can't do that one more thing. All I can do is this thing that I have to do right now. And uh, that's really, that's really well put. You're right. And I, I, and I think that's how I've forgiven myself for some of it. And certainly how the people in my life, I hope, got past it and forgave me. I mean, maybe empathy, let them do that. Maybe just plain old sympathy. They could see I was falling apart, but I could only do one thing. And if I was going to do one thing, it was Aaron. I failed miserably at also doing Justin, my second son. Um, and he's always going to have that in the back of his mind. But we all had to come to terms with being a new family that had rare disease living with us. And we still do, you know, mm -hmm. 10 years later. Yeah. It's a situation that didn't just happen to one person. It happened to your whole family. And I think we forget that sometimes when someone is in uh, a health crisis, the attention is all on the person with the disease and the impact is on everyone in the family. You're right. And we each suffered differently yet had a process of our own. And I'm a, a huge fan of grief counseling and bereavement, and I've studied and written a lot about it in uh, other books. And I noticed at some point that the stages of grief were happening for my son. 
and uh, we weren't going through them at the same time. Um, the traditional, um, the traditional stages of grief, the Kubler-Ross stages, and I'd studied them at length as well as had been developing sort of my understanding of my own. But you know, he did a lot better than I did in terms of processing. He sat with it. He moved forward. Uh, and as the again, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, he um, he says he was able to do that because I did the heavy lifting. Wow. And all I say to that is uh, better me than him because yeah. he needed a chance to still be a kid. You know, he was, he was 15, 16 at the time. I was thinking about a book that I had just downloaded and I can't remember what it's called, but the writer had worked with Kubler-Ross and he, David Kessler. David yes. Kessler. Yeah. He was <laughs> on another podcast and I downloaded his book right. and I haven't read the it yet. Sixth, the sixth stage is finding meaning. I believe his book is called finding meaning. Is that the one? It could be. It's in my, I went a bit crazy on, I'm just confessing to you now. I went a bit crazy during this pandemic on downloading books. Fantastic. So, so I am a huge student of Kessler's work. I probably have his book within inches of me right now, Sandy. Uh, I think it's called Finding Meaning is the sixth stage. That's the, what he's trying to do. And yes, he was with Kubler-Ross, in fact, when she died, and he was her co-author. Right. So I, I guess when you were talking about that, I was thinking about that final stage and was writing the book in a way part of that final stage for you in finding meaning? Whoa, that is a fantastic book, uh, a book question. Yes. But what I found was the most painful revelation of all. You know, I, I celebrated the fact that I rediscovered my kids in different roles uh, with one another. And they're still, you know, the, the best friends I have because that's what we became. We became roommates and friends. But you know, what I found at the end is that I had no idea who I was anymore. And those who read it will get to the point where out of the mouths of babes, my then 25 year old son, who's been through all of this with me says like, mom, like, don't you think I know that you've lived the last 10 years for me? And rather than me say, oh my God, of course I have. Um, and you know, make light of it. I, it hit me like a ton of bricks that my discovery was that he had lived with the burden that I was so focused on his health that he bore some guilt around that. So I realized that in rediscovering myself, stepping into the freedom of the next phase of my life, which yes, is what my next book is about. I realized I'd be gifting him relief I'd be gifting him the meaning that every mother would do this for their child. And it wasn't something that he brought on me. It was my choice to do. So the meaning I found in the end was that I don't have any regrets over the things I sacrificed and what I gave away mm -hmm. for the last 10 years. And there were times when I realized I was letting life pass me by very quickly and I was still too focused on medical care and not wanting to leave him and not wanting to be away in case he needed a doctor. The meaning I found was that I have to step into myself now. And most mothers come to a point in their life, don't they, where they're okay, so my kids are off in the world, I have to find me now. Well, I'm quite literally at 53, uh, trying to figure out what the next 10 years are about. And that hasn't been easy. The meaning for me to find is still for me to go and get, I think, mm -hmm. and that's, I hope the next book where I can figure out what this decade prepared me for. Wow. 
that's that's profound and i i think that you know we can never go back and redo our lives we can reframe our experiences and that is a reframe that you'll be doing in the next decade for sure yeah but there is a gift, I believe, anyway, in suffering and in our pain, that it brings something into our lives that uninvited, but it changes us as well if we let it do the work that it's uh, intent on doing. What would you say, Patty, pre-diagnosis um, learned that was a lesson that's changed her for the better. Mm. Wow. What I learned was um, we will ultimately find something we have to relinquish control to. It might be called a new number of things, but it's always love. And I relinquished control over my life because I loved him much more than I loved myself. And I don't regret anything about that. Mm. He, uh, he and his brother are um, the best things I ever did. And um, I wouldn't change anything about stepping in for them. And I, I don't wish it on anyone. But it didn't feel traumatic at the time because we had each other and the comedy in the book although we cut out so much of it because we were really dark and irreverent you know I became a teenage boy and I was pretty good at teenage boy anyway you know I was coaching <laughs> I was I was coaching hockey I spoke teenage boy pretty hey, well but... I can still see that in you <laughs> <laughs> I will never give up the teenage boy and I think that's probably in addition to my messy hair what my kids think of most about me is that I can go where they go even at the age they are now but you know the lesson is uh is always love mm. even if we're giving up something that no one else thinks they would there's yes. only one reason there's only one reason it's ever worth it yeah i love that i do and i i really really like the title of the book loving large i think it's it's there's just many layers to me of the meaning of that title and even what you just said, that expansion in your own capacity to love yeah. is a theme that runs in the book and it's, it's wonderful. It's uh, much unwitting to me, the love theme. And this tells you everything about me that I, I give generously, I love hard. I used to take risks with my heart. Um, I probably take fewer of them now. Maybe that's wisdom or maturity or just <laughs> fear. But um, Loving Large, the title, was a brilliant move on the acquiring editor's part. Um, her name is Rachel Spence at Dundurn Press. And she I had submitted some titles to her. This and Living Large was on my list. And she said, well, what about Loving Large? I said, no, no, that's not it. And then I thought, wait, what a beautiful play on words mm -hmm. that Loving large is what the book is about, but I also loved large because my son is seven feet tall and that's what his disease demanded of all of us was the acceptance to love ourselves into the bodies that we have. And as you know, I step into the world of stigma uh, around sizeism and other stigma in the book and loving the body he got was about accepting himself. And there was a possibility too that he would outgrow his body. 
and that's very much the reality of his disease. So playing on those themes was the brilliant, uh, the brilliant wise eyes of an editor. So I cannot take credit, but I adore the title now. Yeah, it's great. Would you read a little bit of your book? I will. I will. I haven't, uh, I haven't ever been able to choose what I would read. I'd like to give a cliffhanger, but I also want people to go right into the moment with me. So I'm on page 28 of the book in the chapter called Researcher. I shuffled down the same hall behind Dr. Tobin, past the height chart and the way scale and the adorable murals, my own dead man walking. She hefted the test results onto the desk as I took a chair across from her. It's gigantism, isn't it? I said. It was time to say it out loud. Dr. Tobin's purse, she pursed her lips. I'm afraid it is, although the CT scan was incomplete on Friday and we need an MRI to be absolutely certain. I wanted you to know it confirmed a large mass on Aaron's pituitary gland. A tumor. Yes, a tumor. I have no idea how long I stayed in the office or what happened after that. If I made follow-up plans or promised to update her, whether I wrote something down and on what, I don't know. I remember none of it. All I could picture was a tumor, a sinister red bloody blob and the euphemism mass did nothing to dilute that fixation. Dr. Tobin escorted me to the office door and stayed with me through the hallway past turning heads of waiting patients. She must have known I was on the verge of a meltdown and didn't want me getting hysterical in front of mommies about to walk their sick wee ones into the exam room. I remember looking back and seeing her wet blue eyes and managing, what do I do now? Keep the appointment you have tomorrow with the endocrinologist. It's good timing, she said as I stepped on the elevator. I bolted for my car and once inside I pulled myself into a quaking, wailing ball. A big X had been drawn over my boy's name. Someone else was getting the last minute reprieve that should have been mine. My kid had a 3.6 centimeter tumor in the middle of his head. How do we go from sore knees to a brain tumor? The walls of images fanned across my mind, screen captures from my internet search the night before, the sullen faces, distorted bones, bent hands and massive feet, movie monsters, incredibly tall men cast in sideshows. It was a terrible mosaic of my boy's future. Yeah, you're you're so good at painting a picture that I felt like I was in the car. I knew how you felt. Well, I didn't know, but I, I could picture how you felt and feel how you felt through your writing. And um, just the um, the questions that come with that diagnosis. You know, there's there's a finality to it. There's a this is this is the name of it but that opens up its own box of questions mm -hmm. and, and uh, exploration. You know, this, the specter of tumor and the other piece, and I can read it if you want me to, is on page 34 of saying the word tumor to him. You know, as a parent, as the, as the researcher, as the, or as the doctor or the clinician, the disease is the thing. But there's so much specter around this idea of tumor, this invasion that something is inside your body, which is also part of why the cover has this creeper vine on it, which is the invasion of something that you can't ever completely cut away, which was the truth of the tumor that Aaron has. His tumor has never been completely cut away or eradicated. Part of it still is within him. The worst, of course, was saying the word tumor to him. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the other piece I can read if you'd like me to. It was, yeah. it was too big for him to fathom. 
So this one's on page 34. Aaron's rust-colored anorak appeared out of the glass doors behind my car. He would have looked like all the other boys with their backward ball caps, his royal, his royal blue and sporting the bold white horseshoe logo of the Indianapolis Colts. Their baggy, low-slung jeans, high-cut sneakers, heavy backpacks, and the ever-present hoodies, except he was a foot taller. Aaron walked with a little limp, his knees still so sore, even though he'd been excused from gym class for over a week. He was with a boy I didn't know, and they were laughing together. He was so happy. I was about to take that from him. He yanked open the back door and tossed his bag in, saying, hey, mom, and closed it again hard. Flopping down into the front seat beside me, he yelled, see ya, to the kids gathered on the sidewalk, awaiting their rides. He swung his long legs inside and fastened his seatbelt. What should I do, drive away? Tell him here? What if I get us into a car accident? I hadn't put the car in gear, which drew his attention. I was paralyzed, still flexing my fingers around the steering wheel, staring straight ahead. What, he said, and I just blurted it, knowing I'd be tossing a live grenade into the tenderest spot in the universe. I saw Dr. Tobin today. She got the CT scan results. Yeah, what is it? Watery dark eyes and pale cheeks with reddened blotches turned towards me. It's a tumor. Pulled the pin, released the spool, 10. Nine, eight, Aaron exploded. His fists flew, he punched his legs. He pounded the dashboard and shook his head from side to side as if he was trying to loosen a swarm of bees. Then he stared hard at me, tears streaking his face, shouting, no, no, mummy, no, mummy. Shock had reduced my teen to a toddler. I saw the hands on the clock rotating backwards, taking away time, stealing his present. He hadn't called me mommy in years. I felt like my brain was going to burst out of my head. I couldn't bear to look at him. I couldn't look away. I had no right to be exempt from this. If he had to bear it, so did I. Wind rushed by my ears, white noise. There was only his pleading, his begging. Why, why, why me? I hadn't dared to move the car yet. My own vision blurred by tears. High school kids sauntered by, looking into the car. Aaron was raking the skin on his face with his fingertips, head thrown back against the headrest. I knew it. I just knew it. I knew something like this would happen to me. I knew it, Mom. I didn't have any more words. He'd heard enough from me. I rested my right hand on his leg, offering it to him, and I bowed my head. I didn't know how to bear that his world was crashing in around him while I sat there doing nothing, doing this to him. I was failing him. And you, I don't even know what to say in response to that. That is such a powerful, um, and I think for every mother, that delivery of that kind of news is like our greatest fear. You know, we, we can get through things ourselves. We can get things through things for our children, but having to watch them in pain is very, very difficult. Thank you for reading. You are a writer and you talk a lot about documenting his medical journey for the research that you did into it, but also all of those appointments and all of the things that I don't think people realize becomes a part of the role for a primary caregiver. And, um, I'm just, I'm curious about that, about what that was like for you as a writer. What kind of records did you keep anything beyond the medical records? Were you journaling? How were you 
uh, recording and documenting that time? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's a great question. I mean, this is where a lot of my time went, was uh, learning, learning about the disease, learning about gigantism, and learning about its adult uh, close relative, acromegaly or acromegaly. Um, I had to learn about its treatment options, doctors, successes, data. There is so little written that I spent a great deal of time researching. And remember, this was, um, this was a long time ago, right? This was 20, 2009, his diagnosis. So 2009, 2010, 2011, this was my focus. So, um, but I wasn't printing medical papers at the time, it was still beyond me. And that took more time than I thought I had because I still was managing to raise two kids that had active lifestyles. I did journal, but the journals were, um, were mostly self-deprecating, like I should be doing better. How I felt, um, I was, uh, again, spoiler alert, I was processing a breakup with my husband, um, my best friend being gone because I'd cast her off. I had a major depressive episode I was recovering from. Most of my recording of that time probably happened by talking through therapy with a really great therapist uh, who stayed with me all those years. I didn't see her very often in most years, but that stayed with me. But I'll tell you that this, the, my greatest companion was a big, thick turquoise binder, which I still have. So everything. Color is no surprise. <laughs> color is no surprise. To know me is to know my obsession with watercolors. So it's a turquoise binder. But here's the funny thing is at the time I was able to get my hands on a tiny little laptop. And I mean a tiny little laptop. This was before I fell in love with my 500 Mac devices. I had a little tiny laptop that went everywhere with me and it ended up being the saving grace. So on that were spreadsheets of records that became essential to the quality of his care. As you know, there are some scenes in the book where I became the source of information for this kid's healthcare. In ICU at the top hospitals, they wouldn't have records from other places. You know, we weren't as optimized digitally 10 years ago as we are now. Hospitals weren't networked the way they are now. So I quite often would have to pull a piece of paper out of my bag that I dragged everywhere with me that would say, here were his blood levels six months ago. Here are his prescriptions. So I, I did become the documenter, and I'll tell you, I needed a spreadsheet just to keep track of all the doctors and hospitals. Um, he had a doctor for absolutely everything. He had someone who was prescribing things to help him digest food and people who were describing, you know, tumor suppressant medication. He had someone for everyone, and we were driving constantly. So the keeping track of everything became how I likened myself to having a map table, like I was, you know, guiding my ship through uh, without a rudder. I, I needed these, I needed his book, his medical records. I often had to prove I was his mother because of course he was 16 to 18 years old. I had to speak for him. Then there were the times when if I hadn't dragged those notebooks and stuff around with me, if I hadn't been a writer, it might not have come to me so quickly, so early that this is gonna be essential. I have no doubt that um, his treatment was even more successful because I was dragging information around with me innumerable times. Someone would just look at me and say, hey, Patty, have you got Aaron's such and such? Because over time, they relied on my help. And the second in command in healthcare is essential as an advocate. And one of the things that my publisher was so supportive about in the end was me having each of my chapters is named after a role that I played. 
and this was essential. There was a time where I was his advocate. There was a time where I was his caregiver, where I was the researcher, where I was his cheerleader. There were also times that I was his punching bag. And there were times where, you know, I was a wrecking ball. Not so proud of those, but equally true. So the writing may have um, gotten me through, but writing about what I was enduring didn't happen for years because I simply couldn't write it well yet. And I even wrote it once, the whole book, and then wrote it again because our journey didn't end. Rare disease and chronic disease and even critical disease can and can endure long past our coping far more years than we can imagine and you know Aaron's been at it now over 10 years he's just passed his 11th anniversary since he had brain surgery and um, it's never gone right it is literally the house guest that doesn't leave and I wasn't able to write about it for years I'm going to wrap up with some questions that are not about the book but before I do that I want you to tell people how they can connect with you and where they can get the book or any details you think would be important for people to have. It is available everywhere as soon as life returns to regular shipping channels after we're recording this during the COVID-19 lockdown and the world is just opening up. Um, certainly the best information is at pattymhall.com where uh, you can certainly buy the book from me, but it, I will update if something should go uh, wonky with shipping channels. Uh, it is widely available online and that still right now is the surest way of getting it. It's dropping in the U.S. later than in Canada. So it will be the third week of May, possibly later it drops in the U.S. And then early June it drops in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, on my website, on my book page, I have those sneaky resources that I never gave out in the book. The things that are surprises. There are pictures of us, me and the kids. Um, me and my kids that are much taller than I am, uh, kind of tossing me around like a football. I have some resources I'll be posting on there about the disease. I have uh, videos and audios of me reading sections of the book out there too. So um, those are some of the places you can find me. And I'm all over social media, Patty M. Hall. Patty with the M. I am not the country singer, Patty Hall, by the way. What are you working on right now? You've, you know, you've, other than launching your book and everything that goes along with the book promotion and all the podcasts and different channels that you're working with right I'm, now uh, to get the book mm -hmm. out? So I'm coaching writers who are developing their books, of course. I'm always doing some of that. I try to write a book every year. Uh, this year I'm writing a collaboration that I haven't revealed yet. It's just about to be sold to publishers. I'm developing uh, one of two books for myself. I'm doing research into giants. So I have another book planned on all things giants, medical, mythical, and magical. And then I also have a next memoir that I really hope I can evolve, which right now the working title is Where To Now, which is literally something Aaron says to me uh, late, in, late in the book. He sort of says like, where are you gonna go now? Like go do something. So that's what's uh, coming to me now. A lot of people are asking questions about pieces not in Loving Large, and those pieces I hope to pick up in the next iteration. I never thought I could write a second memoir, but I left a lot on the cutting room floor. Uh, look forward to that. And what book is currently on your bedside table? 
good question. Is it a good I, um, question? Because I feel like you can't have one book on your bedside table. There must be I like have, 35 books. <laughs> I do have 35 books. So I will tell you, although I'm not going to be able to name it, I just cracked the spine on Alison Waring's, she's a Canadian author, Alison Waring's new memoir. Um, I apologize, Alison, that I can't name your book. I literally cracked the spine last night. And I'm rereading a lovely memoir by Lori Gottlieb, which I think is called You Should Really Be Talking to Someone, something like that. I read it last summer and it's brilliantly organized. So I'm rereading that. I just finished Ruth Reichel's uh, latest memoir. I adore Ruth Reichel. Um, I've just finished Save Me the Plums uh, and I'm in love with that one still. Right. Well, I've read one out of three, so I'll have to check out the other two. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story here, for reading from your book, and for um, just the message of this book. And I know that there are a lot of women and caregivers who are in a similar and difficult position, and this book would be helpful for anyone for them or anyone connected to anyone going through that as well as just anyone interested in memoir and learning about rare disease and the impact it has on a family so thank you so much and it's an honor thank you yeah and it's like like I said at the beginning it's just the beginning the start of this new series we're doing and so next week we'll have another memoir writer well kind of a hybrid memoir mm -hmm. writer on our on reframe your life and we're going to do that interview together so I'm looking forward to that I know this is going to be great we're diving into memoirs for a couple of months so look for it everyone yeah thank you